welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome along to Gateway this morning. If you do happen to be visiting with us, we're so glad you're here this morning. Um, The last four or five Sunday mornings, um, I've been doing a series out of a rather unusual book in the Old Testament, a book um, called Ecclesiastes, and we've called the series Solomon in a Postmodern World, mostly because what transpires in this book is incredibly relevant in terms of where we find ourselves as a society. We are following the author of the book, Solomon, as he searches for the meaning of life. He's really seeking an answer to the great why questions of life, rather than simply trying to deal with the how and what questions of our human existence. He wants to know why am I here? Why are we at sea in the first place? What are our sailing orders? And he's doing a desperate search for meaning, and it's being done in, um, in, in the phraseology of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. Now, that's a phrase that occurs nearly 30 times in these 12 chapters, and when you add variations on it, it's used nearly 50 times in these 12 chapters. And, and it's trying to say something to us. It's a secular search. It's not a, it doesn't have a vertical horizon to this, uh, or vertical dimension to this search. It's done under the sun without reference to God, without reference to revelation, or without commitment or belief in even spiritual realities. So he goes down a number of pathways seeking to find what life is all about. We have followed him as he went down the pathway to enlightenment. The the life of the mind would knowledge, would wisdom, would study, give the answers to the why questions of life. After having gone down that road, he comes back up to the crossroads, as it were, and says, it's pointless, it's futile, there's nothing down there that will give you an answer to the meaning of life. And then he goes down another road. He goes down the road of enjoyment, the life of the body. He tries wine, woman, and song, as it were. And he comes back and says, that's fruitless, that's pointless. Last week, we looked at Ecclesiastes chapter 3 as he talks about times and seasons. And I suggested to you last week that while the famous poem uh, that Pete Seeger turned into the song, Turn, 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 is incredibly beautiful, it is nonetheless a continuation of his pessimism and his despair. He's caught in the tyranny of time, and, and the poem seems as much as anything to be an expression of his fatalism, this imprisonment by the iron sequence of seasons that just keep coming and changing and and leaving him with this incredible sense of futility. So in this message, I want to pick up from where we left off in chapter 3, and we're reading Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 16 through verse 22, and I'm reading it in the Amplified Translation. It says this, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice there was wickedness, and and, and that in the place of righteousness, wickedness was there also. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time appointed for every matter and purpose and for every work. I said in my heart regarding the subject of the sons of men, God is trying, separating and sifting them, that they may see that by themselves, under the sun, without God, they are but like beasts." 
For that which befalls the sons of men befalls the beasts. Even in the end, one thing befalls them both. As one dies, so dies the other. Yes, they all have one breath and spirit, so that a man has no preeminence over a beast. For all is vanity, emptiness, falsity, and futility. All go to one place, all are of the dust, and all turn to dust again. Who knows the spirit of a man, whether it goes upward and the spirit of the beast, whether it goes downward to the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, for that is his portion. For who shall bring him back to see what will happen after he's gone? Now in this portion, Solomon raises an issue that he will return to again and again and again throughout the rest of the book. He says, I looked for justice. I looked for justice. I couldn't find any. In the places where there should have been justice, it was either lacking or completely absent. I looked to the law courts. There was no justice. I looked to governmental authorities and, and people and no justice. And again, you know how incredibly modern that is. In many, many countries around our world today, the law courts are probably the last place you would get justice or righteous judgments. They are places of graft, of corruption, and it's the size of the bribe, more often than not, that determines the judgment either for you or against you. In many places in our world, those sworn to uphold the law are the very ones who violate it most regularly. I remember being in a certain country a number of years ago and I was told by the locals not to go out on the road between certain times of the day. And when I inquired why it was those times that I shouldn't be out on the road, they informed me that the law enforcement officers would be out about that time looking for their morning tea. And I said, what, what, what do you mean? And they said, they will give you a ticket for a minor violation or perhaps no violation at all that can be immediately overlooked by a small bribe that would ensure that that particular officer enjoyed a nice morning snack. The very people who are supposed to uphold the law using the law in a minor way perhaps, but nonetheless, where you expect justice and righteousness, there isn't any. In many places, the rich triumph over the poor in legal matters, not because they are right, but because they are rich. And even in so-called more enlightened, more advanced nations, the guilt and innocence of the law courts is more often than not determined by the legal team one can afford or can't afford, rather than on simply the facts of the case. And we all know that good laws are no guarantee that life in general or things in particular will be fair, equitable, or just. And this is something that deeply troubles Solomon. Listen to some of the comments that he makes. I've just picked out a selection of his concern about suffering, about evil, and about injustice. He says in Ecclesiastes 5.8, don't be too upset when you see the poor kicked around and justice and right violated all over the place. Exploitation filters down from one petty official to another. There's no end to it and there's nothing can be done about it. The despair of the man. In chapter 8 verse 9, all this I observed as I tried my best to understand all that's going on in this world. As long as men and women have power to hurt each other, that's the way it is. In chapter 7, verse 15, 
I've seen it all in my brief and pointless life. Here a good person cut down in the middle of doing good. There a bad person living a long life of sheer evil. Chapter 8, verse 14. Here's something that happens all the time and makes no sense at all. Good people get what's coming to wicked, to the wicked, and bad people get what's coming to the good. I tell you this makes no sense. It's smoke, he says. Chapter 9, verse 2. It's one fate for everybody, righteous and wicked, good people, bad people, the nice and the nasty, worshippers and non-worshippers, committed and uncommitted. I find this outrageous, he says. The worst thing about living on earth, that everyone's lumped together in one fate. Is it any wonder that so many people are obsessed with evil? Is it any wonder that people go crazy right and left? Life leads to death, that's it. Chapter 9, verse 11. I took another walk around the neighborhood and I realized that on this earth as it is, the race is not always to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the satisfaction to the wise, nor riches to the smart, nor grace to the learned. Sooner or later, bad luck hits us all. No one can predict misfortune like fish caught in a cruel net or birds in a trap. So men and women are caught by accidents, evil and sudden. He's despairing. He looks around. There's no rectitude. There's no righteousness. There's no justice. There's evil and suffering. People who are good get what comes to the bad, and the bad seem to get what should go to the the good. And and Solomon's conclusion in all of this is he says, we are no different from the beasts, he says, in that first passage that I read to you. We are beasts. We live like beasts. We die like beasts. And who knows whether there's a spirit or not. And whether the human one goes up or the animal one goes down or there's none at all, he's saying. I mean, life is a jungle, he says. It's the survival of the fittest. How, how postmodern is this? How incredibly relevant is, are these kinds of comments? I mean, whether it's Carl Sagan or David Attenborough, we are constantly told on the TV that we are nothing more than beasts. We are derived from the beasts. If we're a little more advanced, then it's simply that we are the highest animal at present, at least, on the evolutionary totem pole. So much has been made about the parallel between the jungle and modern life, between animals and humans. Desmond Morris, who was the curator of mammals at London Zoo, wrote two very well-known books in the late 60s, The Naked Ape in 1967 and The Human Zoo in 1969, in which he explored these parallels between the jungle and the city and the animals and the humans. Apparently, we're nothing more than advanced apes that live in concrete jungles, and we, like all of the other animal species, are in a struggle for survival. And that idea of struggle has become one of the key ideas behind the development of philosophy and political theory through the 20th century into the 21st century. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, built his theories around mankind's struggle for power. Picking up on Nietzsche, a little German corporal wrote a book that was to become a bestseller. It was called Mein Kampf, My Struggle. The corporal, of course, was Adolf Hitler, and he became the driving force behind national socialism that gripped Germany during the 1930s and 1940s and drove the world into catastrophic war. The struggle of the Nazis for the super race gave way to the struggle of the communists. Karl Marx built his ideas around the struggle between the working class and the bourgeoisie, the working class and the ruling class. He didn't go for the super race, but 
drove his theories by the struggle of class. And that was a struggle no less catastrophic than the Nazis' one. Life is a jungle, struggling. One species preying on another, the strongest surviving, the weakest going to the wall. And our society is basically saying what Solomon's conclusions were so many thousands of years ago. The human species is no different from the beast. We're just like animals. This is his conclusion. And that's where an under-the-sun perspective has to end up. And yet, Solomon's deep intuitions and deep longings betray him. Because human beings long, as Solomon does, for justice, for rectitude, for life and people to be equitable and fair. My question is, if life is under the sun, why would you even have those longings? Other animals don't seem to be concerned with such things. And it seems to me that we intuitively know that we are not the same as animals. We use different standards when we compare our behavior with that of theirs. We never speak of an animal's behavior in terms of its ethical or moral goodness or badness. When a lion hunts and kills a zebra, we never say the lion murdered the zebra. When a great white shark, a male, forcibly copulates with a female shark, we never say he raped her. We don't attribute morality to the actions of creatures in the animal kingdom. And yet we immediately, we intuitively do that when we talk of human beings. How could that possibly be? Why is it like that? You know, as much as our society in Attenborough and Sagan and the others like to say we are just more sophisticated animals, intuitively we know there is a great gulf between us because we, the human animal, if you like, cry out for justice. We cry out for things to be right and fair. Now, I know there are evolutionary biologists who consistently and logically follow through the implications of their ideas. I'm not in the habit of normally commending one Richard Dawkins, but at least in this I must. He is at least honest and consistent in terms of his reasoning and what he says about life. He says this, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt and others are going to get lucky. And you won't find either rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there's no bottom line, no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiful indifference. DNA, DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. Logical, neat, tidy, consistent. Life is a jungle. Get used to it. And I'll tell you what, he's right if we live under the sun. In an under-the-sun world where there's no spiritual realities, where there's no God, where there's no revelation, physical beings are produced in a material universe simply by blind chance. And there is no place or reason for objective values and for moral goodness. They simply cannot be accounted for. Ideas like free will, moral responsibility, justice, injustice are truly, in an under-the-sun world, nonsensical. Now, what I'm not saying is that they don't exist. They clearly do, and that's my point. What I'm saying is an under-the-sun world, there's no philosophical basis for them. Dawkins says, rightly, in such a world, evil isn't evil. 
It just is. But clearly Solomon can't live with those conclusions. And I want to tell you, neither can you. Neither can I. Because how do you tell the victim or a victim of the Holocaust that what was done to them, in fact, wasn't evil? It was just the law of the jungle. It wasn't wrong. You were just the weaker species, and therefore you got to go to the wall. It has a hollow ring to it, doesn't it? How do you tell a woman that was raped or that was abused that her perpetrator wasn't evil? He was just simply dancing to his DNA. We intuitively know that napalming babies is bad, that deliberately starving the poor is wicked, that buying and selling each other is depraved, and that there is such a thing as evil, and that there is such a thing as injustice. We have a deep intuitive sense about how the world should operate and how it should not, and we can't shake it. Where did it come from? Surely this is a pointer as C.S. Lewis once said, to rumors of another world. You know that quote. If I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, he says, then its most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We cry for justice. I think that this cry for justice, this revulsion against evil and suffering is actually a backhanded proof of an above-the-sun perspective in life. The very outrage that we feel against evil acts reveals a built-in sense that there is such a thing as evil and that some things are desperately blameworthy and damnable. Philosopher Alvin Plantinga put it this way, could there really be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we just evolved? I don't see how, he says. There can be such a thing only if there's a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for general, genuine moral obligations of any sort and thus no way to say that anything is... As, any such thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, he said, if you think that there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness and not just an illusion of some sorts, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God or for the possibility of an above-the-sun perspective on life. When we claim, as we do from childhood, that some things are not fair, not right, we are all appealing to an objective standard that we expect the ones that we are appealing to to understand and to acknowledge. And you know, the funny thing is their response is nearly always to explain how they've not violated the standard or if they have, that there are special reasons that would excuse them from violating it. They very rarely say to hell with your standards. When we claim an action is unjust, we are doing so on the assumption that there is an objective standard by which we can make that judgment. You can't talk about a line being crooked unless you have a concept of the straight line with which you are comparing it. You know, many unbelievers claim that they don't believe in God's existence because of the presence of evil in our world, so much of it just simply gratuitous. This, in their view, doesn't square with a good and just and loving God. And they'll say things something like this. If God were good and powerful, then he would step in and he would stop the evil and right the injustices. He doesn't. Therefore, he's either not good in that he doesn't want to, or he's either not powerful. In other words, he can't stop it. Now look, I grant you 
that the presence of evil and injustice in our world is a massive problem for people like you and I, for people of faith, for people who do believe in a good, just, powerful God. There's no denying that it's a problem. But it's an even bigger problem for people without faith, usually the people that are framing the argument. Secular people are not only not able to provide an an, any answer for the existence of evil and justice, unless they're logical like Dawkins, they can't provide an answer for evil's presence. Not only that, they ultimately can't even justify their question. They can't define injustice since they deny any straight line with which to compare it. You, you can't talk about justice unless, injustice unless you have some sense of what justice should look like. Without an objective standard to measure these things by, we are simply reduced to subjective preferences. I'd prefer it if you didn't like that. If, you know, if you didn't do that, because I, I, I don't like that. We're simply reduced to preferences. I don't like X is about as good as we can muster. But where's the moral weight in such a subjective feeling? I can't possibly be morally outraged to hear that you prefer opera over rock or that you prefer pork over chicken. There's no moral outrage in that. It's just simply preference. But more seriously, I don't have any objective basis to be morally outraged when you say I prefer human flesh over chicken. By the way, what I am not saying is that people who don't have faith can't be moral or ethical or good. They can and often are. But you see, that's my point. We all intuitively see the need for justice. If you don't have an above-the-sun perspective, however, you can't actually ground those feelings on anything subjective. And those people without faith who live good, moral, ethical lives are actually living better than their philosophy actually allows them to. If we acknowledge the presence of an objective standard against which we measure these things, then you have to go further and admit that someone has established the standard. You can't have a moral law without a moral lawgiver. Without an objective standard in an under-the-sun world, what one cosmic accident does to another cosmic accident is ethically irrelevant. There's no basis for moral outrage or anger. Whatever happens, happens, and that's it. And none of us believe that. Robert Morley says this, the problem of evil does not negate the existence of God, it actually requires it. If Solomon and the postmodern world with him is right, and that we are no better than the beasts, then this constant cry for justice in the face of injustice and suffering is absolutely nonsensical. Now, what I've said a number of times is that Ecclesiastes' questions introduces us to the Bible's answer. Ecclesiastes is part one, the Bible is part two. Ecclesiastes is the introduction, the Bible provides the answers that Solomon's so desperately looking for. And the rest of the Bible answers to, speaks to the cries of Solomon's heart's heart regarding the presence of evil and, and injustice in our world. And the Bible doesn't shy away from these problems 
of evil and injustice. The book of Job tackles it head on. Habakkuk goes into God's presence and says, why do you tolerate injustice? And God answers him. Psalm 73, Asaph cries out in the same confusion that Solomon's in. How is it that the righteous suffer and the wicked seem to get away scot-free? The Bible acknowledges these questions. It acknowledges the reality of evil. It shows us very clearly where it originates. As far as humanity is concerned, the Bible's storyline storyline is very clear. God fashioned us in his image and we reflect a moral and self-determining propensity. He made us to love and to be loved and true love by its nature demands freedom. You cannot, you, if you don't have love, if, if you don't have freedom, you don't have love. You, you, you can have the Stepford wives, but you can't have true love unless there is the possibility of turning your back on it. There can be no love without freedom. However, the possibility of freedom opens up another possibility, wrong choices. And evil is inherent in the risky gift of free will. And Genesis chapter 3 tells us that humanity decided to turn their back on love. We chose to rewrite God's law and sought to be God ourselves. And the truth of the matter is we didn't break God's law but were broken by it. And now life on every sphere, in every sphere is broken. It's broken on every front because it's broken within. The problem with evil is that it is first an eternal issue, an internal issue before it becomes a cosmic one. Now this might sound like a really harsh comment, I don't mean it to sound too harsh, but I think the claim oftentimes to not believe in God because of evil in the world can be disingenuous. And by that I mean, isn't it funny that the evil we get so upset about is always somewhere out there? It doesn't seem to be so bothering when we are the perpetrators, when we're the ones who are wrecking our family. Have you ever noticed the cry, it's not fair, is always directed to people up the ladder, very rarely to people below you. In choosing to be independent from God, we open Pandora's box the evil, the suffering, the injustice. And Romans chapter 8 reveals that the whole universe was impacted by that and groans under its impact. Now, someone perhaps listening to me might say, but Don, surely, surely if God is a God of love and justice, he could step into this mess. He could overrule our choices and, and set it right. But, but How? God can't give free will and then remove the consequences of the free will at one and the same time. The one precludes the possibility of the other. But you say to me, but Don, isn't he supposed to be all-powerful? He's omnipotent. Surely he can do whatever he wants to do. No. There are a number of things God can't do. He can't lie, the Bible tells us. He can't turn his back on his own character. Again, listen to C.S. Lewis on this question. Omnipotence means the power to do all that's intrinsically possible, not to do the intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. This is no limit to his power. If you say God can give a creature free will and at the same time withhold free will from it, you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix them with the words, the two words, God can. Can God create a square circle or make a two-sided triangle or wish himself into oblivion? No. 
God can't create a square circle or make a two-sided triangle. Not because he's not omnipotent, he, he is. But the, the very definitions of circle and triangle lose their parameters with the nonsense of the question. This isn't a matter of God's power. God doesn't do nonsense. Free will opened the door to evil and injustice. Solomon looks at it, and his answer to its presence is simply, I hate life. I hate life. So many people come to that place. The Bible unpacks God's ultimate answer for these questions of evil and suffering and injustice in the world. And I want to tell you something. God's answer is not a watertight philosophical argument. As much as I've given you philosophy and, and, and Solomon's book is a book of philosophy, God's ultimate answer is not a watertight argument. It's not some abstract idea or notion. It's a person. It's a personal presence. It's the second person of the Trinity, the Word made flesh, who came and stepped into our under-the-sun world to share our humanity, to shoulder our limitations, to suffer, to be the victim of injustice. He's, he's felt all we feel. He knows our world, sin accepted. Dorothy Sayers, the wonderful author, once said this, for whatever reason God chose to make men as he is, limited in suffering and subject to sorrow and death. Just put a bracket right there. I would want to interrupt there and perhaps have the gall to uh, adjust Dorothy Sayers' comment by simply saying, actually, God didn't make them that way. And Ecclesiastes was later to say that, God make them straight. It's we that twisted our way. But anyway, this is how man is. And she goes on to say, he at least had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he kept his own rules and he's playing it fair. And he can exact nothing from men that he has not exacted from himself. He has gone through the whole human experience from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. God knows. He's experienced it. You know, the point of this message is not to get God off the hook, as it were, from the presence of evil and suffering and injustice in the world because the Christian God came to earth in the presence of Jesus and put himself on the hook to secure our redemption. This is a reality, by the way, that Solomon at this point in time did not know and could not see. He's living with an under-the-sun perspective, but it is one that we can see and know because of Jesus. And I want to tell you, that the Bible tells us that in the end, God will, through Jesus, put all things right. He will be the just and right judge, and he will set all the wrongs to right. Until then, he gives us the grace to see his hand in all things. He's willing to stand with us as he did in his life. He's willing to stand with us and walk through even the most trying of circumstances, saying to us, though I did not bring this on you, I will work with you and we will see it turned. And even that, even that, I will make work for you. You know, I said last week, there are some things in my life that I would never wish to 
re-experience, but that I would never trade. And I know that when I said that, some of you are thinking, you know, that's true. I wouldn't ever want to go through those circumstances again. At the time, I could not see any redemptive thread in them. It just was dark, dark, dark. I can look back now and say, you know what, it, it was where I was at at the time. There didn't seem to be anything redemptive in it, but God did something in and through those circumstances. Even if it was just deep in my heart. Even if it was simply that I understand some people now that I never could have before that, before that experience. He changes things. And, and like the divine alchemist, he takes the base metals and, and he can bring gold out of the worst of situations. Yes, the world isn't fair. We know that. Solomon grappled with that, but his under-the-sun's perspective actually didn't even allow him to justify the questions that he was asking. For an above-the-sun perspective, it all makes sense, and we have answers in Jesus. I have no idea what some of you are going through. Some of you have been through the most difficult, trying circumstances. Some of you have been through situations where you have been treated so unjustly. And you wonder, how could this possibly be? How could God sit there and watch on? Well, he didn't. He didn't sit there and watch on. A, he walked through with you. Even though you didn't see his hand, his heart was there for you. He will bring it out the other. He will, he will bring you out the other side and work in your circumstances, and ultimately, he will right the injustices. That's our hope. We live in a we live in a, a an above the sun world, and it changes everything. I'm going to ask if our team would come. I'm going to ask if you would stand. And as they lead us in worship this morning, remember Job who lost everything. And I mean, you know, everything. Business, family. Um, at, at one point, in the, the, the lowest point of all, his wife even, just, you know. And I'm not, I think sometimes we're a little harsh on Job's wife and we think that she is, you know, kind of... What a tough thing to say. But any of you who have lost a loved one over some debilitating disease, you know how you get to a place where you just think, I just wished it was over for them. I just, I just, I don't want to lose them, but I just wish this would stop. And I think that's what she was saying. Why don't you just, just curse God and die? Somehow finish it. And Job says this incredible thing. He says, you know, basically summarizing it, you know, we, we receive good from his hands and we're grateful. Sometimes the seasons change and we're in the depth of winter. Shall we not receive that from his hand? And shall we not say, bless the Lord, O my soul. God gives and God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, over the years in Pentecostal circles, we have claimed that real faith is prosperity. To me, that is real faith. When in the depths of darkness, we can still lift our hands and lift our heart and say, you know what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Why don't we worship this morning as we close? If you're in a good season, be grateful. You know, again and again, Solomon says, enjoy the work of your hands. If you're in a good season, enjoy it with the people you love. Be thankful, be grateful. If you're in a real bad season, bless the Lord, O oh my soul.
in the midst of the hard times. Don't let go. There's nothing to let go for, you know. G.K. Chesterton once said, people get into hard times and they turn away from God. And he says, to heaven's name, what? What do you turn to? The despair of Ecclesiastes? Or do you hold in hope to a God who knows exactly where you are, knows what you're going through, been there before you, and will shepherd you through? Let's worship together, shall we? Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.